Well, hello and welcome back to this episode of Tales of the Resistance. This is a podcast about antimicrobial resistance and how it impacts our daily lives. I am Mara Zelt. I am one of the regular hosts of the podcast and also project manager with the I Am Responsible team, which is a nationwide team of researchers and educators who work on antimicrobial resistance. In today's podcast, I am going to be joined by the I Am Responsible team's resident graphics guru, Amber Patterson. Hey, how are you? Doing pretty good. All right. Today we have a very special guest joining us, Dr. Carrie Nixon. Carrie teaches at Whitworth University. She has a degree in medical humanities and Victorian literature. Her research focuses on the confluence of microbiology, germ theory, and social norms in the late 19th century and expands into the present day, considering the risk aversions that motivate antibiotic usage and aversion to vaccines. Yeah, this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I think she'll have a lot to share with us. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive right in. Would you start us out by introducing yourself and letting the audience know uh, what it is exactly you do related to antimicrobial resistance? Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Mara. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Kari Nixon. I'm um, a somewhat different uh, addition to the IAMR team, I think. Um, I study something called the medical humanities, and I am in training an English professor which probably seems a bit odd that I'm on a team about antimicrobial resistance. Um, The first thing I think to say to explain that is to explain what the medical humanities is. Um, And pragmatically speaking, it's basically an umbrella discipline that houses more familiar sounding terms like medical ethics, history of medicine, that sort of thing. But, The medical humanities more broadly defined isn't limited to any of those fields and is sort of a way of asking, how can we do science better by pairing the best knowledge we have in um, history, what's worked and not worked in the past, in philosophy, what are the best practices? So how can we use all this best information, qualitative information to make better quantitative science in the here and now. Um, To be a little more specific, um, I have a, my niche specialty is in the history of how people have reacted to bacteriology and bacteriological science um, as relates to infectious diseases over the last 150 years. And so when I saw what your team was doing, I, um, it just kind of was a, nat- a more natural fit than you would probably, probably think initially when you hear that I'm an English professor. Well, it has been a very good fit, I think. Um, so within, it's within your study of medicine, people's response to, um, microbiology and stuff. Do you remember the first time you heard about antimicrobial resistance and and what your sort of initial response to it was? Wow, that's a great question. I have a lot of like oddly 
vivid, formative memories about my first encounter with a variety of different disease concepts, um, which is so weird. But I don't know that I remember the very first time I heard of antibiotic resistance. It seems like something I've just always known, which obviously I haven't, but it's just been such a, um, it's felt like common knowledge to me for so long. And when I joined up with the I Am Responsible team is when I began to learn only very recently that it is not a well-known concept to most people, which seemed surprised me. It is surprising. And, and I found it interesting because we've asked this question to most of our uh, team members. And a lot of them have very specific memories, often in college, even grad school, the first time learning about it. Hmm. I'm, I'm like you, though, I don't remember. I think as far back as I've sort of been aware of things, I knew about it, but obviously learned a lot more in the recent years. So, so then the last question that I always ask people, it's to think for towards the future. What do you think about what the future of antimicrobial resistance is going to have for us from your perspective um, in your field? And if you have one or two main priorities that um, you want people to understand about antimicrobial resistance or that you think that we need to address um, in order to meet the challenge in the next few years? Um, I think the thing that has, and so as somebody who works with science communication and the ways we can pose and present scientific information better to the public, I am pretty strict when it's with my students or I'm the series editor of a health communication book series out of Lexington Books. And I'm pretty strict when I accept or don't accept books into that series about, um, I usually say that just awareness campaigns are pretty unhelpful. And we've seen that we have quantitative research that backs up that. Like just saying, be aware of this thing doesn't really do much, right? Like people don't necessarily know how to translate that into action. Um, and so just raising awareness is usually unhelpful. However, I tell my students that is not really the case when it involves an issue that just frankly isn't known about yet. Now, you have to be careful and you have to do your research and it's easy to presume or want to presume that people don't know about an issue. And so you have to double check. But I have just been really struck with how many people I have to tell what antibiotic resistance is, like when I use that phrase. And so I think as often as I speak against purely awareness-based campaigns, in this instance, I, I almost feel like a better ability to like flood the airways and PSAs with just like drilling it into people's head what it even is, is the first step. And of course that requires massive amounts of funding that requires getting like really big organizations like the FDA um, or the CDC to care about helping circulate that messaging, um, which of course has its own challenges. Like the CDC is a little bit preoccupied right now. You know what I mean? But 
ironically, that's what I would say in this case is like, no one small organization like ours can do enough because it is not, people are just not aware enough right now. That's what I would say, I think. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of, of having the, the reach and the resources. Have you seen in the last couple of years any, um, any improvements there or sort of, I guess, because of COVID, reduction of um, what you would think is like necessary messaging and information on this topic? No, I've seen no change. And I think ideally we would have seen that we had made a little bit of traction in our group. And I'm not trying to downplay how hard we all work, but COVID kind of put everything in kind of a holding pattern. And I think we might've been able to make much bigger waves by now had that not happened. But the other thing you struggle with in this society and, um, even let's say the CDC doesn't have full control over something like this is that everybody everywhere, everyone is struggling to call the attention of the algorithm and then the public onto their message. And so it's, it's not really like before where if you had a million bucks, you could put on a a TV campaign. Right. And even then, obviously that, closes off access for some organizations. However, there's this sense that social media is more democratic and open. And so just, you know, anybody can get a message that goes viral out, right? Well, the downside of that is that everybody's trying to do that. Everybody's trying to cash in on what they see as this like free market space and, and ultimately, of course, it's not a free market space. It's the the owners of these data algorithm processing companies. And by that, I mean, um, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that actually um, have the power. Can I share um, an anecdote that illustrates this quite well with you? Oh, yeah, please. Okay. I'm going to pull up the guy's name because I want to give him credit. It's a TED talk he does, and uh, his name is Andreas Ekstrom. He talks about um, the way Google search algorithms um, organize image results, which is usually based on how you caption the image and what you name the file. After Barack Obama got elected, some racist group had purposefully altered how they captioned and titled the files of Michelle Obama's pictures so that instead of her pictures, when you Google image searched her name, um, these racist images would come up. There was immediate public outcry and Google fixed it. Like Google did something so that they stopped however that person had um, been manipulating the algorithm, they fixed it. About a year later, maybe, there was a terrible terrorist in Norway who shot and killed 70 children. He was an alt-right fanatic. And allies in Sweden 
proposed doing a similar thing. They asked everybody to adjust their out, like adjust their title names and their their file names and the captions of that man's name to pictures of dog poop as just like a protest against this man. And it got very famous that this was happening and Google did not fix the algorithm. Although I think most of us are like, hooray, you know, hooray that they fixed the thing with Michelle Obama. Hooray that they didn't care about fixing the algorithm for this man who massacred 70 children. Um, what Andreas Ekstrom points out is that this shows a tremendous amount of power with whom? With the people running these companies. The only difference in what happened to these two people is that Michelle Obama was deemed to be an honorable person by Google and Anders Bering Breivik, who killed these children, was deemed dishonorable by Google. Now, in this example, most people would agree with that judgment. But Andreas Ekstrom's point is not that they made a wrong or right judgment in this instance, but how terrifying is it that they can control that, just them, they get that moral judgment. And so that for me is one good example of what, I don't wanna say what we're fighting against, it's not as clear of a moral issue, but everybody is trying to stake a claim in this digital space that seems democratic, it seems neutral, um, but it is not neutral. It is controlled, designed, and created by powerful people. And so, you know, that's a larger systemic issue to think through. But I think I explain all this to say that, like, this is what we're up against in public messaging right now. And so, like, I mean, it's not like, it's to some extent, it's not that we could do more or do enough. It's that we have to find ways to work smarter, not harder. And I think even I, as a digital humanities health communication scholar, am just starting to think about how to get around that issue and what that means. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Data Feminism, which is about like data justice and grassroots initiatives to get around these algorithms. And, and so I think like we have great messages and we've thought a lot about how to communicate them well. I think dissemination technology is the next challenge facing us. All right. Well, I like that as like a, a pathway forward. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it does feel, feel so often like wheel spinning, you know, like yes. Amber and I are, are in our little office here in at the University of Nebraska on our hamster wheel, just like we're trying our best. We're trying our best. Yes. Um, but it doesn't seem to be having the impact, right? So yeah, and I think like for us, just like feel free to keep this in or not, but like I don't think like we shouldn't despair because like treading water is what most organizations have done during COVID. And we're also finishing up a lot of long-term initiatives. And so I think the pivot is coming. And I think a lot of organizations right now are dealing with kind of realizing like you can't just post enough to make your message get through. Like there are gatekeepers and that's just a new awareness coming culturally. You know, it's not like something we could have done earlier, I think. 
Well, that's, that's a hopeful message, I guess. Thank you. I have lots of those. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Tari. All right. Well, um, let's wrap it up there. We'll come back again next week. Uh, we have a couple more meet the team introductions to look forward to. Um, so we'll hope uh, to see you all again soon. Wouldn't it be really awful if I had chosen this moment to publicly tell you that I hated being a part of this team? It would be a little bit, I would probably cut that out, to be honest. <laughs>